0: Well, good evening again from, from my side. If you were not here uh, this morning, special welcome to you from me. Uh, I know we don't normally do notices on a Sunday evening, but uh, just two notices that I would like to reiterate this evening, in case you weren't here this morning. is just one, our baptismal service that we're planning uh, to host in the next couple weeks. If you uh, have never been baptized as a believer and you'd like to know more information about that, there is a blue booklet at the info desk. Uh, please take it and read through it. There's an application form inside which you can fill out. Uh, If possible, if you could let me have that back by next Sunday, uh, and then I'll arrange to meet with you and to talk through that uh, with you. And so that's just one announcement. The other is this coming Wednesday night. If you are not yet part of a small group, uh, we would love for you to join one. And one of the ways we're wanting to just uh, facilitate fellowship between all of our small groups is to start the year off and to commit our small group ministry to the Lord in prayer. And so this coming Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock here at the church, we're asking all our small groups uh to just come together and um And then we will be introducing you to the leaders of the small groups. They can just uh, tell you what night of the week or what time of the day they meet. Uh, You can put a name to a face and hopefully go up and approach them if you're not part of a small group and uh, find out more information about joining. So uh, as elders, we really believe that to be a healthy church, uh, every member of this church needs to be part of a small group. And so some smaller group where you can get to know one another, care for one another, study God's word together, over and above our gathering together on a Sunday. So please do join us on, on Wednesday evening uh, for that, and we look forward to a time of fellowship as well together. Well, Would you turn in your Bibles this evening to Genesis chapter 37? Uh, we're going to read together uh, Genesis chapter 37 as we start uh, the story of Joseph this evening. Um, just by way of show of hands, how many of you were here 30 years ago? Just put up your hand. Okay, so this will be the second series you've had uh, in Joseph, because uh, as I was chatting to to Lee Robinson this past week at Yvonne's funeral, uh, I told him that we're starting a series in Joseph, and uh, he said that he did that 30 years ago here at, at Honey Ridge, and that was a great blessing to, to him, and he trusts to many of those uh, who are still part of the church. Apparently it was in the Boss Crane Community Hall uh, in the freezing cold. And yet people came out with blankets uh, week by week to hear God's word being expounded. And I have been praying that this series for us would be a a great blessing to us as a church uh, as we look at the life of Joseph. So let's read together uh, Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. "'Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. "'He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. "'And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. "'Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, "'because he was the son of his old age. "'And he made him a robe of many colors.' His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, His father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, "'This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not.' He identified it and said, "'It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces.' Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him." But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the God. Just so far in God's word, let's just come to the, the Lord in prayer as we commit our time to him this evening. Lord, we come before you, uh, deeply dependent this evening upon you, We thank you for the great joy and privilege that is ours of reading your word like this and spending the next little while to consider the truths in it. Truths that not only point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, but because they reveal Christ to us, speak to our own hearts as your people here in Johannesburg in 2023. So help us, we pray this evening, Lord, to understand the text, to understand the flow of your providence at work in the lives of your people. And to continue to see your hand of incredible providence at work in our lives as your people today. As you were at work in a very confusing and messy situation all these years ago, so we can continue to look to you as a God who is at work uh, in the confusion and the mess of our own lives. And we, we thank you that we have a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we ask that you would please reveal yourself to us in your word this evening. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please keep this passage open before you as we start this journey this evening in the life of Joseph. Uh, If you did perhaps miss the introductory sermon to this series, it's what I preached last Sunday morning from Psalm 105, Um, please would you take the time in the week ahead to just download it or listen to it off the church website or the app um, as that lays the foundation on which we are going to be building tonight uh, and in the coming weeks. But I also mentioned this morning that the overarching theme of Psalm 105, uh, the theme under which the whole story of Joseph is to be rightly understood, uh, is the theme of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. And there is another theme, or we could call it a sub-theme, under the overarching theme of God's uh, covenant faithfulness, and that is the the sub-theme of God's providence in the lives of his people. The fact that God works out all things for the good of those who love him. And so these two themes really are like perhaps two sides of the same coin. God's faithfulness to his covenant promises is then carried out in history through God's sovereign providence. His ruling and overruling uh, the affairs of life and history to accomplish his good purposes. Uh, in the lives of those who love him. One of my favorite verses, I'm sure it's one of many Christians' favorite verses, is surely uh, Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But what does this verse really look like practically in our lives as Christians? Is this just a kind of theological feel-good verse, a kind of bumper sticker or coffee mug verse, which, if we are honest, feels very disconnected from our daily lives? Or is it a verse which in a very real, a very concrete way determines how you and I see the world in which we live and how we understand every aspect of our lives in this broken world? Well, if we ever have a record, not just of a single incident or two, but an entire historical account of the life of a person who lived according to Romans 8.28, it is surely the story of Joseph. More is said about Joseph than any other character in the book of Genesis. And so my hope is that as we grapple with the very practical details of the story of Joseph's life in the weeks ahead, we will begin to understand the wonderful purposes, the wonderful providence of God uh, in each of our lives as we understand uh, His providence in all things. William Berkhoff defines the providence of God as that continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the Creator preserves all His creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. Keep that definition in mind whenever I speak of the providence of God, God preserving, operating in all that comes to pass in order to direct all things to their appointed end. Alistair Begg says about this quotation, the implications of this truth are staggering because they impact every area and every moment of our lives. This truth, the providence of God, is one of the things that separates believers from unbelievers. The unbeliever is not exempt from the sovereign purposes of God being worked out in their lives. It's just not working for their good. Because everything God does and everything God orchestrates in this world, even in and through the lives of unbelievers, wicked, sinful people, is for the good of those who love him. And so let's start this journey with Joseph and to see this truth of the providence of God working its way out uh, in the daily life and activity of Jacob's family. Now, hopefully you are familiar with uh, the basic historical context of the story of Joseph. But as a reminder this evening, let me just bring up the family tree of Joseph uh, so that we can connect the story of Joseph to his right place in biblical history. So so there we have the bigger picture uh, of Joseph's life, and there are many other people uh, mentioned in Genesis who are not part uh, of this picture, but who are part of the broader family tree. But we are focusing on the line of God's promise, Uh, the line ultimately of the seed of Abraham, uh, which flows through Isaac and Jacob, and eventually to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are going to be focusing on Joseph, his role amongst the 12, uh, and we will later on be introduced to his two sons, to Ephraim and Manasseh. And so really most of our time in these chapters is really being focused on Jacob and uh, his sons and eventually the two sons uh, of Joseph as well. Now as we look at that picture and, and you recall to mind some of Genesis, I need to remind you of a couple important things. Firstly, Jacob. Uh, There's Jacob. Jacob's name means deceiver. Jacob fell deeply in love with one of Laban's daughters, Rachel. And he worked seven years to marry Rachel. And on the wedding day, Laban deceived the deceiver and swapped out Rachel for his older daughter, Leah. And so Jacob married Leah and then had to work another seven years for Rachel. Leah, we are told, was very fruitful. She bore Jacob six sons and one daughter. So Jacob and Leah, you can see the line comes down. There's the six sons uh, of Jacob and Leah and Dinah, the one daughter. Rachel, however, was barren. And so she gave her maidservant Bilhah to Jacob, and she bore him two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Then when Leah got a bit older and she could no longer have any more children, not to be outdone by her younger sister's scheming, she also gave her maidservant to Jacob as a wife. And so Zilpah bore him two more sons, that is Gad and Asher. And then when Jacob was very old, God opened the womb of his first love, Rachel, and she bore him a son called Joseph. And then some years later, one more son called Benjamin, but Rachel died as she was giving birth to him. So as we come then to Genesis 37 verse 1, we we have quite a gemorse of a family. One father and four wives. One by desire, one by deception, and two concubines by desperation. So we have six sons of the wife of deception, We have four sons of the wife of desperation, or the wives of desperation, and we have one son at this stage by the wife of desire. What a recipe for a disaster. Now, if that was not enough trouble, we are given a few glimpses in the earlier chapters of Genesis that Jacob's family was not just complicated, but it was entirely dysfunctional. In Genesis 34, we have the account of the rape of Dinah and the subsequent actions of Simeon and Levi to go and destroy the men of Shechem and to just plunder their city, it's it's a horrendous account. An action which Jacob said caused his whole family to become a stench in the land of Canaan. Then in Genesis 35, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, she dies giving birth to Benjamin. And straight after that, we are told that Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, he then went and slept with one of Jacob's wives, Bilhar, Rachel's maidservant. So Rachel dies. He goes and sleeps with Rachel's maidservant, one of his father's wives. And the commentators are divided. Some say it was just an act of pure lust on Reuben's part. But others suggest it might have actually been an event inspired by Leah, Now that Rachel was dead, to go and defile Bilhah and so to secure Reuben, the firstborn of the family, as leader over the entire family. And then at the end of chapter 35, to make things worse, Jacob's dad, the patriarch Isaac, dies as well. And so it's into this scene of chaos and grief and dysfunction that the story of Joseph is told. And we're going to look at this chapter tonight as three pairs of contrasts. A contrast, each pair telling us something significant about Joseph, uh, but also each pair serving as a a shadow, uh, which points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not sure why I'm doing that, um, then please go back and listen to our sermon from last week uh, from Psalm 105. And so in the first place this evening, we see that Joseph uh, is loved by his father and hated by his brothers, We are told right at the beginning of the story in verse 3 that Israel, the new name that God gave to Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And then verse 4 tells us the, the opposite reality, which is that when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. Now, what was it? that revealed Jacob's love for Joseph. Well, verse 3 tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than all the other sons, and so he made him a robe of many colors. It was this richly ornamented, colorful robe which singled out Joseph as the favorite and caused the other brothers to hate him. That's what the text says. But we need to probe a little bit deeper here because Joseph was just a boy, at this point 17 years old and his brothers were all significantly older than him they were all married by now with their own families so why would Jacob giving their youngest little lomiki of a booty a fancy coat why would that stir up such hatred from these mature grown men Well, unfortunately, the translation used originally into English of Joseph's coat as many-colored is not very helpful, and yet it's stuck. What it really refers to is a richly ornamented coat, which may, I'm sure, have been brightly colored, but which had long sleeves and which was a flowing robe that went all the way down to the ankles. Now, in a culture where Men were rugged shepherds and farmers. Uh, they wore short sleeve shirts. They wore um, tunics that went down to the knees. And so, this richly ornamented long sleeve robe was something which only rulers or managers would wear. Totally impractical for the daily life of a worker. So, in Jacob giving this robe to Joseph, It signified to all the brothers that Joseph had been chosen by Jacob to take over the role of the firstborn of the family. You see, because of Reuben's act of disgracing Jacob in sleeping with Bilhah back in chapter 35, Jacob had determined to remove Reuben from him his his rights as the firstborn son, to remove from him his position as leader of the family who would take over when Jacob died. What about the next two in line? Well, they were also disqualified because of the the diner incident in chapter 34. And so instead of Jacob moving one by one through all of his remaining sons, he just skipped over them all. And he revealed that Joseph would become his primary heir. The youngest would become leader over all his brothers. And so this bred a deep-seated hatred in all of his brothers. And we are told in verse 4 that they could not speak peacefully to him. Now this is not a case which I'm sure many of you, if you're a parent, I'm sure you've many times said to your children when they were small or when they were big, Johnny, that's ugly. Speak nicely to your sister. It's not that. The Hebrew literally says they could not say shalom to him. Shalom was and still is the standard Hebrew greeting. It's a well-wishing of peace and blessing and wholeness on the person that you are greeting. But his brothers hated him so much they could not even say shalom to him. Well, in the second place, we see that Joseph is set apart by God and is rejected by his brothers. Now, verse six and verse nine tell us about the two dreams which Joseph had, which in his youthful folly he decided to share with this delightful band of ten brothers. And and we don't have to guess what their response was to his dreams. Verse five tells us that because of the dreams, they hated him. the coat symbolised simply more than a father's favoritism, so too dreams, dreams were understood to be far more significant than simply a little boy's fantastical nighttime musings. I mean, today, if your 17-year-old woke up and said, hey, Dad, I I dreamt last night that one day I would become Thor, the god of thunder. And when some baddies come into town, i just whack them to the moon with my super-powered hammer. Well, we might worry that the child suffered a concussion um, or that perhaps he's watching too much TV. But we would just brush it aside as, as childish fantasy. Thor is a fantasy, by the way, for some of you guys, just in case you weren't sure. But not Joseph's brothers. And the reason is because at this stage in the early history of God's dealings with his people, dreams came from God. Dreams came as a means by which God revealed himself and his purposes to his people. And what we're going to see throughout these chapters in Genesis is that the dreams God gave to Joseph, the dreams God gives to Pharaoh's servants in prison, and eventually the dreams that God gives to Pharaoh himself, they all come in pairs to confirm that what God had revealed would indeed come to pass. And so Joseph gets two dreams. The first dream, he and his brothers are binding sheaves of wheat in the field, and his sheaf rises up. And the brothers' sheaves all gather around it and bow down to Joseph's sheaf. The second dream was effectively the same thing, this time just further intensified. In the second dream, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to Joseph. Now remembering the hostility that already Jacob had identified Joseph as the future leader of the family, the one who would take the place of primary leadership, can you imagine how these two dreams were met with great hostility? Look at verse 8, his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more. I think this is the third time. They hated him, then they hated him more. Now they hate him more again because of his dreams and his words. Verse 10, when he told the second dream to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. You see, what made these dreams so much worse for his brothers is that it was clear from the dreams, not only that Joseph was loved by his father, but that Joseph had been set apart by God. Two dreams from God revealed to his brother that God had appointed Joseph to be the ruler over their family. They they could not figure out how at this stage, but this truth about Joseph made them hate him all the more. Verse 11 says, because they were jealous of him. Now that's a very telling statement. They were jealous of him. Notice they were not jealous of his coat. They were not really even jealous of his father's love. They wanted to rule. Each of them wanted to be preeminent in the family of Jacob. But God had allocated that to Joseph. The brothers reveal their true hearts in in verse 18 and 19. If you move down a bit further, Joseph had gone looking for his brothers about 60 miles from home when he finally tracked them down at Dothan. They saw him from afar, verse 18 says, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Here is the real issue driving their hatred of Joseph, which is ultimately their hatred of God, their rejection of God. They took Joseph's dreams very seriously, and because none of them were worshipers of Yahweh, because they had rejected the faith of their father Jacob, they had rejected the faith of their grandfather Isaac and their great-grandfather Abraham, they could not stomach to see God fulfilling his promises through the youngest, through Joseph. Their hatred of Joseph was really a hatred of God. Their rejection of Joseph was a rejection of God. And so they said, let's kill this dreamer, and then we will see what becomes of his dreams. In other words, they wanted to usurp the role of God. If we kill Joseph, we bring the plans of God to nothing. So that leads me to the final pair tonight, which is that Joseph is sold out by his brothers, but he is sent ahead by God. Nine of the 10 brothers are in agreement to this plan to kill Joseph. And, And in a strange twist of irony here, which actually all started with Reuben back in chapter 35 when he slept with his father's wife, which caused him to lose his birthright in the first place, now it is Reuben who steps in to persuade the brothers not to kill Joseph, but to throw him in a pit Now, with this turn of events, Reuben tells us intended to come back and rescue Joseph. But while he's off somewhere, maybe he's tending the sheep or doing his rounds or whatever it was, his brothers see a caravan of, of Ishmaelite traders. They're coming from Gilead down to Egypt. And so led now by Judah, the brothers decide to make some money off their evil plan. And instead of just killing Joseph, they can make some profit off him. And so they sell him to the traders for 20 pieces of silver. That was a a large sum of money. Reuben comes back after it's all too late, and he is distressed about how this incident is going to look on his CV. Uh, And so they all come up with a a plan uh, to, to deceive Jacob by presenting him with Joseph's coat, ripped and covered in blood, so that Jacob will not suspect them of their evil plot. Jacob, we must remember, who once himself deceived his father Isaac in order to steal the birthright of his older brother Esau, is now deceived by his own sons who try to steal the blessing, the birthright, which Jacob had passed on to Joseph. And he is utterly distraught at the evidence that they present to him. For him, Joseph is dead. His favorite son is gone. His plans for the family heritage to to continue through Joseph is shattered. All his hopes are dashed to pieces. What a depressing place to end the chapter. But there is one more verse. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So after the, the kind of nonstop action of this first chapter, the brothers think that they have succeeded to crush the purposes of God as they get rid of Joseph forever. Jacob is crushed in his grief and commits, as we read, to live the rest of his days in a state of mourning. Meanwhile, Joseph is sent ahead by God to Egypt. Remember what we considered last week in Psalm 105, verse 16 to 19, when God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what God had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Here we see by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how we are meant to understand the events of Genesis 37. Not as a a total mess of chaotic, dysfunctional family whose infighting and jealousy led to the tragic cutting short of a young man's life and all his dreams. No, Genesis 37 reveals to us the sovereign, ruling, and reigning of God over the painful mistakes of a bad father, over the wicked hearts of 10 sinful brothers, even over the cruel actions of a band of pagan slave traders. God is ruling and reigning all because God is faithful to his covenant promises. How do we know this? Well, I read it this morning. Do you remember what God said to Joseph's great-grandfather? Abraham, in Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there, they'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on that nation, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. How was God going to get Abraham's offspring from the promised land to Egypt? Egypt. Simple, by sending a famine on the world. How was God going to preserve his chosen people in Egypt for 400 years so that they could eventually multiply and leave with great possessions? Well, it's simple. God had sent a man before them, a man called Joseph. And so as we conclude this evening, I mentioned last week that the shape of Joseph's life is really a shadow which points us forward to the shape of Jesus's life. And we see this already in the first chapter, in the striking parallels between Joseph and Jesus. I'm sure you picked it up as we've worked our way through the story tonight. Jesus was loved by his father, but hated by his brothers. Remember the words of God from heaven as Jesus was baptized, Mark 1, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. But at the same time, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. He was hated. We esteemed him not. Secondly, Jesus too was set apart by God, but rejected by the very ones he came to save. The writer to the Hebrews describes Jesus as a high priest who truly meets our need, one who is holy, that also means set apart, pure, blameless, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. John 10, Jesus is described, describes himself as the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world. And yet despite the setting apart of God, of Jesus by God, John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 9, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to his own brothers and sisters, and his own people did not receive him. Peter on the day of Pentecost says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved and finally we see that Jesus was sold out by his brothers but sent ahead by God to be the savior of all mankind we read in Matthew 26 verse 14 one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests, went to the leaders of Jesus' own people and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What will you give me if I sell him out to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And that betrayal of Jesus led to his arrest The crowds of brothers and sisters of Jesus crying out, crucify him, crucify him. The elders and the chief priests were jealous of him. They tried to bring the plans of God to nothing. But Peter reminds us in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's another way for he was delivered up according to the sovereign providence of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. and so As we see the parallels to Jesus in the shape of Joseph's life, can you see the, the same shape working itself out in your life? If you and I are in any way depicted in the story of Joseph, we have to start by recognizing that we are not Joseph, but we are far more like his ten brothers that we desperately need to be saved from our own self-destruction. Or perhaps you can identify yourself tonight in the grief and the dashed hopes of Jacob. All the plans you've made for your life and for your family just seems to have evaporated before your eyes. You see, both Jacob and his 10 sons, although they didn't realize it yet, they all needed a savior a saviour from the mess that they had made of their lives, a saviour from the future devastation which was coming in the years ahead, and ultimately a saviour from their own sinfulness. But none of them could see that in Joseph, God was going before them to provide exactly what they needed. And at the end of the story, and we'll be quoting this verse many times, I, I think, be, Uh, during this series, when Joseph stands at the very end before his brothers as this earthly savior with a small s, he won't let them misplace their trust in him. He won't let them miss the sovereign providence of God. And so he says to them in Genesis 50 verse 19, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be saved, should be kept alive as they are today. Are you trusting in the Savior with a capital S that God has sent into the world? Jesus Christ, his beloved son. If so, then you are loved by God. Deeply loved by God. And you can take great comfort that in all things, God is working out everything for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you again this evening that we have the joy of ending our day in the word of God what a wonderful account we have in the story of joseph to point us to shine a mirror as it were onto our own hearts to see many of the attitudes of jacob and the 10 brothers in our own hearts and to recognize perhaps that even for many years in our life we have rejected the savior that you set apart and sent into the world to save us but we thank you lord that even in our rebellion And in our rejection of you, you are a God who continues to pursue us. You continue in your faithful providence to bring us to that place where we came to see Jesus for who he is and to trust in him. And again, I pray this evening, Lord, that for any here tonight who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you would break down all their defenses That you would reveal to them the the ugliness, the sinfulness of their own hearts. You will reveal to them the devastation of the path that they have chosen. And that in your perfect providence and sovereignty, as you've sent a man before them, even Jesus, they would look to him to be their Savior this evening. For we pray this in Jesus' name.